Good morning, Christ Central. I was away last weekend. Uh, I really missed you guys. It's really nice to be back. And welcome to Christ Central. Uh, if you're new, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. And in, this morning, it's my joy and privilege to bring us the Word of God. We're going to look at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. This is the parable of the dishonest manager. Uh, would you please give your full, undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. He, being Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, I pray that this morning, if there is anything obstructing or impeding our ability to hear your word, receive it in faith, and live by it, God, I pray that you would remove that. Would you lift the veil that may be covering our hearts and our eyes so that we can see Christ and the gospel and your scripture so clearly and be convicted and changed this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at two things from this passage. The first is Jesus' commendation, and then the second is Jesus' command. So let's jump right into it. The first thing is Jesus' commendation, and that is shrewdness. In verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What a strange turn of events. The very guy the master fired for wasting his possessions, he now in verse 8 is praising him, is, is commending him. And this seems really strange to us because this, this manager was dishonest. He's actually called dishonest. And this word dishonest means unrighteous of heart in life. We could summarize this manager as a very unsavory character. So then why is the master commending him? Isn't he the bad guy? Are we not supposed to be rooting for the bad guy? What's the lesson here? Are we supposed to be like this unsavory character, like this dishonest manager? And at a first glance, the lesson may seem objectionable, 
But it's important that we understand what Jesus is teaching here. The master is not commending the manager's shadiness or his dishonesty. The master is commending the manager's shrewdness and his discernment. Jesus is not saying be shady and be dishonest, but he's picking this one quality, this one characteristic about this manager and saying, be like this, be shrewd. The lesson here is Jesus is saying, we as believers need to become more shrewd than we are now. We hear this morning, Jesus would say, become more shrewd. Why? He says, the sons of this world are more shrewd than us. What does he mean by that? The sons of this world are the people in this world who are living like this world is all that there is. They're, they're unbelievers. They're, they're, they're living their lives. They're spending their money and their time, their energy, because they don't believe there's anything after this life. And let me ask you, is that the way you are living? And Jesus is saying, even though they don't believe there's anything after this, they're still more shrewd than we are. What does this word shrewd mean? It's translated as prudent. And a lot of people, they will use this word prudent synonymously with the word wisdom. They are very closely related, but they are not exactly the same. This word prudent has, has a different flavor or emphasis to it. And that emphasis is that those who are prudent have foresight. They're able to look ahead. And based on what they know is to come, they live their lives accordingly and make decisions in the present with wisdom. The book of Proverbs speaks a lot about prudence and wisdom. One example from the book of Proverbs is Proverbs twenty-seven, twelve: The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The prudent see ahead. They know what is coming. And they make changes to their lives. They have the gift of foresight. It's not that they can predict the future, but they are prepared for the future. And Jesus is saying in, in verse 8, the sons of this world are more shrewd than the sons of light. The sons of light are believers, sons and daughters of God. And Jesus is saying, why are they better at investing their wealth and their possessions and using their time and energy than we are given what we know? What do we know? We don't know everything that's going to happen, but we do know that this world is not it. We do know that after we die, the scriptures are very clear. Every single person, every single person here will stand before God and they will give an account for their lives. We know the Bible teaches us of, of the happiness of heaven, but also teaches us very clearly of the horrors of hell. And it would be very unshrewd and imprudent of us to continue living our lives here as if none of that were true. The manager knew his time was running out. He knew that he wouldn't have a job very long. And so he got ready. He was prudent. He was shrewd. He didn't waste that, that short time that he had, those precious hours to prepare himself for what was to come. Our lives here are like a vapor. They're short. 
If you're a believer and you, and you read the word of God, you know what is to come. We can't continue to ignorantly live our lives as if we don't know what is coming. How foolish would it be for this manager to know that he's going to get fired and not do anything about it and not prepare for it? How foolish of it is it for us? Who know Christ is returning and yet we are not preparing ourselves. The manager got himself ready for what was to come and the question I pose to you this morning is, are you ready? Are you ready? The manager's position was coming to an end. Your position in this world, your life is going to come to an end. And no one stands a chance standing before a holy God apart from Christ. And so the main way that you prepare yourself for eternity is you need to ask yourself, do I know Christ? Am I a believer? Have I repented of my sin? That doesn't mean you've got to repent of every single sin, but acknowledging I am a sinner, and I really believe that, and I really believe that there is nothing I can do to save myself, no matter how many good things I think I've done, that they're going to amount for and account for nothing when I stand before God, and that the only thing that's going to matter is my faith in Christ, because when a sinner stands before a holy God, that never ends well. And the only way that that ends well is if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and in the gospel, Jesus is freely offered to us that if we would trust in him in faith, that when God looks at you, when you stand before him, he would see the righteous deeds of Christ and you would not be condemned. But that is only through faith in Jesus. The gospel says this is by God's grace freely offered to you this morning, I pray that you would seriously consider where you stand before God and no longer procrastinate or ignore it because that day is coming. Jesus is urging us to be ready and to be prepared. That's why he's commending this manager for his shrewdness. He got ready in a hurry, but he wasn't always shrewd. And maybe you're not shrewd or prudent here this morning right now. So why and how did the manager get really shrewd? He got really shrewd really quick because of reality. Reality hit him really hard. Time was running out. He wasn't ready for what was to come. In verse 3, he says, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. He wasn't ready for it. And again, the question is, are you ready? In Matthew 24, Jesus says, you must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The manager sprung into action. In verse 3, he asked, what shall I do? What shall I do? That's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning. What, what am I supposed to do? Maybe you're hearing this for the first time or maybe you're being reminded of the reality that Jesus is coming back and he will judge the world and he will separate the sheep from the goats and there is heaven everlasting and there is also hell everlasting. What shall I do? What am I supposed to do? It's very similar to Acts chapter 2. After Peter preached, they were cut to the heart when they heard the gospel that they were sinners in need of saving and they asked Peter, what shall we do? 
Peter says, repent, place your faith in Jesus and you'll be saved. That is the primary way that we prepare ourselves for the end of this life and the life to come. What did the manager do? He called his master's debtors. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of oil. Say it's 50. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. Say it's 80. He was getting ready and preparing himself for what was to come. What was he doing? He was making friends. He didn't have enough time to save up for retirement because he was about to lose his job, but he did have enough time to make friends who would receive him into their homes or maybe hook him up with a job later on. But he was preparing himself. The primary way we prepare ourselves for heaven isn't by making a lot of friends here on earth, but first and foremost, making sure that Jesus is our friend and we know him. But Jesus actually goes beyond that. Yes, that is the most important thing. But it's important that we know that as Christians, okay, some of us say, oh, I know Jesus now. That's all that matters. That's what's most important. True. So now I'm just going to wait for him to come back and I, I don't have to do anything else. Jesus would argue against that and say, no. No, there's still actually more for you to prepare other than just your salvation. And this is Jesus' command. So his commendation, his praise is be shrewd. That's why he praises the manager. And he's calling us be shrewd with your lives and everything that you have. Look ahead, be prudent, don't be foolish. Don't live with your heads buried in the sand. What more can we do? Now that we know Christ, if you know Christ and if you are a believer, I want to urge you this morning and let you know there's more, so much more you could be doing, and that's Jesus' command. He says, make friends. It's an interesting command. But he actually says in verse 9, make friends for yourself. This is a command in Scripture. If you are a follower of Christ, you are commanded, make friends. And this is, has nothing to do with how extroverted you are. It has nothing to do with social media or Facebook. It has nothing to do with your popularity. What Jesus is talking about aren't friends here in this present world. Some of us are really good at making friends in this world. Some of us find it very difficult. But Jesus is saying, that's not what he's talking about. Actually, everyone can make these kinds of friends. Anyone can. And these are the friends that matter because these are what I would call forever friends. Jesus is talking about the friendships that we're going to have in heaven for eternity. And he's actually telling us, you can make more of those friends based on how you live here on earth. Some of us may think, well, but I thought everyone is going to be friends in heaven. Are we all going to be friends? Why do I need to make friends then? Yes, I would say everyone is going to know each other. Everyone's going to be friends. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Absolutely, that's true. There are no clicks. No one's going to get ignored. Everyone will get invited. There's no FOMO in heaven. But I believe what Jesus is getting at here, although everyone will be brothers and sisters in Christ and friends, some people in heaven will experience a deeper camaraderie, a deeper intimacy, and a deeper closeness in heaven than others. How do we make these friends? So we need to take a a sidestep here. Before we talk about making 
friends. We need to talk about making money. Because Jesus says, make friends by means of money. Verse 9, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. So if you're thinking, how do I make these heavenly friends? And again, it has nothing to do with how, how outgoing you are, how popular you are, how extroverted you are. So don't worry about that. Anyone can make these kinds of friends. And he says, by means of unrighteous wealth. That's an interesting term in verse 9. Unrighteous wealth. Jesus, by calling wealth unrighteous, he's not condemning wealth. Because he's actually telling you to use this to make friends. Jesus calls it unrighteous because it's unreliable. It's not unrighteous because it's inherently sinful. It's unrighteous because it fails. Again, in verse 9, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus is trying to teach us about money because unless we learn this lesson, you won't make friends in heaven because you'll be so busy using your wealth here on earth on yourself. What Jesus is trying to do by teaching us that it is unrighteous and that it fails, he's trying to put to death the idolatry that we have with money, our obsession with it, that we believe that it'll either save us or satisfy us. What Jesus is trying to do by teaching us that it fails, he he wants you to unhitch yourself, to detach yourself from the, the love of money, saying, how foolish is it for you to love it so much? When it's going to fail, and it fails in two ways. It's temporary, and it's impotent. It's temporary. You can't take it with you. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, you brought nothing into this world, and you will take nothing out of this world. It's also impotent. It's powerless. It's powerless to save. It doesn't matter how much money you have. That is not going to help you when you stand before God. It may help you a lot in this world. It may give you many privileges, perks, and advantages in this world. But it will not give you any advantage, perk, or privilege when you stand before God. That will not matter. It is powerless to save. It is also powerless to satisfy. Many of us look to wealth and money and the things that it can purchase and provide for us. And those aren't in itself bad things. Jesus isn't saying wealth is bad and making a lot of money is bad. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we take a good thing and we turn it into a God thing, that's what Tim Keller says, then it becomes an idol. Wealth is powerless to satisfy. Yes, it can fill your homes. It can fill your closets. It can fill your wallets. It can fill your bank accounts. It can fill your garages. But it will never fill your soul. Only Christ can satisfy. And only Jesus saves. But unless you believe that, you will continue to amass for yourself wealth, which in itself is not wrong, but then you'll continue to spend it on yourself, something that is impotent and temporary. You will look for it to provide you things that only God can provide. But when we realize that it will fail and it does fail, it's temporary, we don't love it anymore. We don't find our sense of worth and validation 
in our wealth and possessions anymore, which means only then, only then, can we begin to use that to make heavenly friends by means of our wealth. You don't have to be rich to have Jesus. Jesus says actually the exact opposite in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Those who are poor in spirit, those who understand I'm needy, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. Jesus says, you're blessed actually that you realize that because then you know what it means to need Jesus. Jesus says as well, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he wasn't joking. Jesus knows our heart and there's something about having a lot of money that you don't really understand need and dependence which means it's really difficult for someone who has a lot to believe that they need Jesus, to believe that I need church, to believe that I need faith because I am sufficient in myself. And so Jesus is teaching us, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. Knowing this, use it differently. Invest it wisely. It's temporary and impotent, but the way you spend it here can have eternal implications. Take what is temporary, invest it in such a way so that it has eternal implications. And this goes back to what Jesus says, make friends. You can actually make friends for yourself in heaven, these future heavenly friends. Why? Because in verse 9, Jesus says, so that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What will that look like? I think a good example is of an individual named Nicholas Winton. He is dubbed the British Schindler. When he was a young stockbroker, he was instrumental in saving over 700 children in Prague and Vienna from these children being sent to Nazi concentration camps. He never told anyone about it until his wife in 1988 stumbled across documents and scrapbooks. And he was later recognized and acknowledged and he received the highest honors in the Czech Republic. There's a video online of him being honored. And he's sitting in the front row in this auditorium. The host is up here and she's going through and sifting through his scrapbook. And there's a list of all the names of the children in this scrapbook. And she points out one girl's name, Vera Grizzly. And the host says, we were able to track her down, actually. And she looks at Nicholas Winton and says, she's sitting right next to you. And the camera zooms in. He's shocked. He cries. She hugs him. She cries. They exchange a few words. We can't hear it, and that's okay. But we know they're having a very special moment. The host goes on and asks the audience, is there anyone here tonight in the audience who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? His whole front row stands up and four rows back. And I can't imagine the catching up that they had, the conversations, the hugs, the exchange of kisses, a very special moment for what he has done. 
I believe that's very similar to what we will experience in heaven. Based on the way we lived here on earth, we will have a kind of reception in heaven. Our friendships in heaven, some will be sweeter than others. Based on the way we have lived our lives to bless them, to serve them, sacrifice for them. I believe that there are many strangers we will run into in heaven. We never knew that we had blessed. Because it's not just those children who owe Nicholas Winton a thank you, but those children's children and those children's 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 children. And so these investments are generational. And so if you're a faithful, shrewd steward here on earth, I believe in heaven you'll experience countless occasions where people will come up to you and say things like, you don't know who I am, but you are friends with my father and that friendship meant so much to him and you kept him afloat in a very dark, depressing season in his life. And you helped him become a better father too and I am thankful for that I'm his daughter. Thank you for your friendship. Or maybe... Someone will come up to you in heaven and say, you don't know who I am. But you supported that missionary, which enabled them to stay in my country long enough for them to reach my family in my village with the gospel. And I know Christ. Thank you for that support. I was trying to encourage our volunteers this morning at the 9 a.m. service. And I believe there'll be conversations that sound like, you don't remember me. But I was one of your Sunday school students 30 years ago. I actually had left the church because the Christians around me seemed so hypocritical and cold. But I remembered how kind and loving and caring you were. So I gave church a second chance. And I found a really good church and I came to know Christ in a real way. Thank you for the way that you taught me when I was a kid. Maybe somebody will come up to you and say, I was one of the babies in in, in the nursery. You used to watch me when I was a year and a half years old. You have no idea who I am. But you watching me during worship service gave my mom and dad a chance to sit together and worship together and hear the word of God together. I didn't know at that time because I was only one and a half, but their marriage was on the verge of divorce. But you watching me allowed... God, to begin a healing in their marriage and they're together now, thank you for what you have done. I can give example, example after example after example. It's endless. Of the way that we will spend our time here on earth and the conversations and friendships that we will have in heaven, everything we do here matters. And Jesus is saying, make friends. Make friends. One Christian author says, the greater our service and sacrifice for him here, the larger and more enthusiastic our welcoming in heaven. And I believe that's true. And there will be no jealousy. When I shared that story about Nicholas Winton, none of us were jealous. If you watch that video, you're not going to be jealous. Why is he being honored? No, of course, we get it. He should be honored. And in the same way, we're going to celebrate the same thing with others. And we're going to want them to be honored as well. And here's a cool thing. It even goes beyond friendships. That alone should persuade us to be faithful stewards now. 
But it goes beyond friendships. In verse 11, Jesus says, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And elsewhere he says, If you're faithful in a little, you will receive a lot. That there are, there's, there are more rewards to be had than just relationships. There's three, I would say, the Bible teaches us. There's people, we just talked about that. There are positions, and there are also possession. And this is a motivator for us to live faithfully here. The way we live our lives and spend our lives will affect what we have in heaven. Now, everyone thinks, a lot of people think, that sounds unfair. Aren't we all equal in heaven? Yes, you're equally loved. You're all sons and daughters of God. And yet I believe the Bible is clear that when we are in heaven, we will all have a different range of experience when it comes to people, positions, and possessions. It's important to note that we will all have maximum capacity, though. I believe it's Jonathan Edwards who says, imagine we all have cups and they're filled with water. Everyone's cup is filled to the brim. Everyone has the fullest joy they possibly can have. It's just that some of those cups are bigger than others. Anthony Hoxima, who's a Dutch theologian, he explains it well this way. He says, when someone has studied music or has attained a certain proficiency in playing an instrument, they have a greater capacity to appreciate music. And I believe that will be our experience in heaven. We will have a greater capacity to appreciate the heavenly rewards and joy in heaven. There are positions, for example, in Luke 19, Jesus says after he rewards his, his, his servants, some will rule over ten cities, some will have authority over five. Different positions, also different possessions. Jesus, in Matthew 6, he, he, he tells us, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. He's actually saying, you can store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Depending on how you live here. No, you can't take it with you. You cannot take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's what one author says. Which is also why Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. We use that a lot, like when we lose in sporting events, we're like, many who are last will be first, and we, we try to spiritualize our loss. That's not what he's talking about, you lost. What he's talking about is this, many who are first in this world, in a world who have a lot of possessions, a lot of wealth. In this worldly viewpoint, they're ahead of everyone else. Jesus is saying many of those, many, not some. Jesus knows what's going to happen in heaven. Many of those people will actually be last in heaven. And many in this world who have very little, relatively speaking. Jesus is saying many of those will be first in heaven. Because how much you have in heaven has nothing to do with how much you have here. It has nothing to do with how much you make here. It has everything to do with how you manage what you have here. When we were in Paraguay this past summer, our team, we did some ministry in one of the poorest villages. The pastor introduced us to this elderly lady. And she said she would push this cart around town collecting recyclables. 
And as you know, the rate of return on recyclables isn't very good. But her son had been in an accident and had medical bills and expenses. And the church, they were collecting offering to help those in the, in the ministry who were in need. And this elderly lady asked the pastor, can I talk to you after service? The pastor wasn't sure, but he thought, you know, it makes a lot of sense. She's in so much need. She's elderly. She has a son who has medical bills. You know, she may be pleading her case. And so they meet, but it was not what he expected. They meet. She takes his hand and puts a few crumpled dollars in it says, take this and give it to those who are in need. I'm going to enjoy visiting her 10 cities in heaven. She's last place in this world, dead last. She will be first in heaven. She managed the little that she had so faithful. And Jesus is saying, many of us who have so much more don't manage that well. And many will be last in heaven in terms of the rewards with people, positions, and possessions. Randy Alcorn, he says this, if we imagine angels employed by Jesus in our heavenly building projects, we might envision ourselves asking, why is it my house larger than this? Their response, we did the best we could with what you sent us. Again, you may think, I don't have a lot, so I can't give a lot. That's not the point. You don't need a lot. It's about being faithful with what you had. God knows what you have and you don't have. He just calls you to be good managers of that. And I want to make an important gospel point here. These good works that we do, they're not how you save yourself. They're how you save up for yourself. And we'll put that on the screen. These good works, they're not how you save yourself. They're how you save up for yourself. Redemption is all grace. Rewards, all works. Works do have a place in the gospel and in the Christian faith. Your works will not get you into heaven. It's your faith that gets you into heaven. And it's your faithfulness that determines what you have in heaven. And to close this morning, practically, how will you respond? This is meant to be a motivator for you. Make for yourself friends. It's a command. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven. How will you respond? Verse 14, we know how the Pharisees responded to what Jesus taught. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. I believe in this room this morning, just even talking about money, it rubs people the wrong way. They don't want to hear it. They feel like God is coming after their treasure and the things that they love. And maybe that's exactly what God is doing. Maybe you want to reject this teaching. Maybe you wish you didn't come to church this morning and heard this sermon. But I believe there are others who are convicted and feel challenged and stirred up. 
And so we need to ask that question the manager asked, what should I do? What should I do? I want to leave you with some practical pointers. And the first is this. We need to ask ourselves, will we be a spender, saver, or steward? Gregory Baumer and John Cortinez, they wrote a book called God and Money. Gregory, he was 25 years old and he was making $250,000 a year. John was earning six figures a year as an engineer. They were both lifelong Christians, but it wasn't until they met at Harvard Business School that they really took a deep look at the way that they ought to be living their lives. And they realized that there are three financial philosophies that people can have. You can be a spender, which meaning you spend your money for maximum enjoyment in the moment. There are also savers. They think that money's greatest value is providing security. But there are also stewards. Stewards know that money fails. It's temporary. It's impotent. And that it's a gift from God meant to be used for God's glory and for the purpose of God and gospel expansion and proclamation. There's nothing wrong with investing and preparing for a rainy day. There's nothing wrong with 401ks, your Roth IRA, your mutual funds. There's nothing wrong with those things. And so I can't speak so specifically into your life, and this is going to be something you have to do, was take an honest look at the way you're living, maybe have a conversation with your spouse. It may be a very difficult conversation. But the first is, consider your life in Christ. Every day, consider your life in Christ. Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 8, That Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that we in our poverty could become rich. It's so important that we understand the wealth we already have in Christ. Because only then will we no longer look for our identity in the wealth of this world. We're liberated now to spend it for the glory of God. I believe that when we all stand before Jesus, we're all going to wish we had given more. When we see that exchange rate, when we get to heaven, we're all going to wish, including myself, I already know this right now, that when I stand before God, I'm going to wish I had given more. And there's no second chance to give. Now is the only time to invest. Spenders are thinking of today. Savers are thinking of tomorrow. Stewards are thinking of eternity. That's what Gregory Baumer John Cortina say. After you consider your life in Christ, here's the tough part, reconsider your lifestyle. Would you be commended for shrewd stewardship? How you choose to live will determine how much you can give. And I'm not saying you have to live in abject poverty. This is every family is different, every spouse is different. Don't judge other people. This is between them and God. But would you let God speak and the gospel speak into your lifestyles and finances this year? In the 1800s, after his baptism, General Sam Houston, he he chose to pay and offered to pay half the salary of the, the pastor. I'm not saying you have to do that. But when he was asked, why? Why did you do that? He says, when I was baptized, my pocketbook was baptized too. He understood that everything in his life was now changed. That there's no air in his life 
where he says, this is mine. He looked to find ways to support gospel work, and I think that's a great thing we can do as well, practically. Consider your life in Christ. Reconsider your lifestyle. Think about ways you can support gospel work. Serving in the church. Planting gospel seeds. And maybe you can't volunteer. I understand, and God understands different seasons in life. Maybe you just had your first kid. Maybe you had your fourth kid. I don't know where you are, but the idea is to do with what you can with what you have. And if you're a parent here, I would encourage you to, to teach your children and your teenagers early on gospel stewardship. How to manage your finances in a faithful way. Because as children, what they learn is more caught than taught. And they, they're watching. They're observing. They notice. I'm not saying you've got to walk them through your, your tax return so they see everything that you're doing. Just set an example. Explain to them time to time. This is why mom and dad spend money here. This is why you can't have that toy. Because actually we're going to use that money over there. Teach them not just how to make money, because I think we all were taught and pushed that when we were kids, especially in Asian homes, make money. But they never really taught us how to manage money and how to steward money. Teach them how to be stewards. And close with this, there's an investing saying that goes something like, the best time to invest was 10 years ago. The second best time is today. Maybe you missed it 10 years ago and you didn't really start 10 years ago. Start today. As a Christian, now is the time. Let's make the most of the time that we have. I pray that we would all be found to be faithful stewards. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would grant us prudence to look ahead and live our days here according to what we know is going to come. I pray that we would be commended as faithful stewards when we meet you face to face. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.